Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. Join us as we get to know some of the people, places, and experiences that make California such a wonderful place to explore. Today, we'll venture out into Anzo Borrego Desert State Park. We'll sit back and stare up into the heavens as astronomer Dennis Mamana takes us on a guided tour of the universe. I think that somewhere down deep in our DNA, we are attracted to the stars because we sort of know them as home. That's where we came from. And we'll talk to Sam Lubell, author of the Mid-Century Modern Architecture Travel Guide. If you love the sleek, retro-futuristic look of the Mad Men era, Sam will share some of his favorite stops in San Diego, Los Angeles, and Palm Springs. Plus, we'll chat with a former pro cyclist who shares some of his favorite rides in the Golden State. It's all coming up on California Now. All right, I'm going to apologize in advance if I sound like a fanboy during this next segment. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm slightly obsessed with stargazing. I grew up in the New York metropolitan area, and because of the conditions there, you can rarely see more than a handful of stars in the night sky. Several years ago, to my surprise and great delight, I encountered a truly star-filled sky while on vacation in Santorini. It was the first time I'd ever seen the majestic Milky Way galaxy overhead, and it absolutely floored me. Well, ever since, I've been eager to replicate that experience, and I'm pretty sure my next guest is someone who can help. Dennis Mamana is an astronomer, author, photographer, and tour operator who takes guests out on night sky tours, educating and entertaining them with insights into the cosmos. Dennis, welcome to the California Now podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you run Borrego Night Sky Tours in Borrego Springs, California, right? What makes this tour unique? Well, Borrego Springs is the uh, only internationally designated dark sky community in California. And what I do is I take people out for evenings under the stars. We use a 14-inch telescope, and I take them on a cosmic journey, first with the eyes and then with the imagination, through the telescope, out to the farthest reaches of our galaxy and even beyond. And folks have just an absolutely wonderful time because, like you said, most people, you know, grew up in areas like you did. And uh, this is really the first time they're able to see the night sky and its in its purity. And why why is Borrego Springs a better place to see the night sky than say, you know, West 42nd Street in Manhattan? Well, West 42nd Street has got <laughs> quite a few lights. Borrego Springs is uh we're um, we're far enough away from the large cities of Southern California. We are a good two hours away from San Diego, at least three to four hours away from Los Angeles, maybe a, maybe two hours drive away from Palm Springs. And we are surrounded by the Anza Borrego Desert, which is a thousand square miles of darkness, basically, with th- mountains on three sides. So we are shielded from the light pollution from all these distant communities, which means that our sky is relatively dark. We can see the Milky Way on every clear night. And it's, uh, it's just a magnificent place. People can get to it because it is relatively nearby of big cities. And so it's, it's become a real haven for folks wanting to look at the night sky. And I saw that Borrego Springs is an international dark sky community and and Anza Borrego Desert State Park is an international dark sky park. So in a nutshell, what does that mean? It means we are a community which has relatively dark skies for the population density surrounding it. So we have a lot of population around us, but we have very, very dark skies in relationship to that. So that's one, uh, one factor. The other factor is that we have a commitment to preserving that night sky. 
And we have a lot of folks in our community, businesses, resorts, that do their part to keep the lights that they have down on the ground as opposed to shooting up in the sky. It sounds amazing that you take this uh, stuff so seriously. It's uh, it's a really great thing. Let, let's jump right into the good stuff. You know, I sign up for one of your tours, and then what happens next? You would come out to Borrego Springs, and like I said, it's about a two-hour drive from San Diego. It's beautiful. It's out in the backcountry, uh, hardly any traffic, wonderful drive. And you come out, and uh, that evening we will meet someplace in town. Of course, you will have all this information well in advance. We will meet someplace. We will drive to the observing site, wherever that happens to be for that particular night. It does change from time to time. And we'll begin our program. And our program consists of initially me introducing uh, my guests to both the environment on the ground, Borrego and the park, and the environment in the sky. The, the, the 360 degrees. And we talk a little bit about the light pollution issues. We talk about the stars, the star groupings, planets, whatever happens to be in the sky that night. I like to try to uh, get people uh, to appreciate what it is they're actually seeing with their eyes. Then we take people to the telescope and we start talking about the telescope. I want people to become astronomers for the evening so they have to understand the workings of the telescope and how they are going to operate it later. And after that, we begin peering through the telescope. And usually we'll take a look, depending on conditions, we'll take a look at four, maybe five, six objects in the night sky, ranging from planets to stars to star clusters to nebulae, star stellar corpses, uh, even things as far away as distant galaxies. And at the end of the evening, I will send my guests an email and I will recap for them everything that we've looked at and supply them with a list of links that they could go to to learn more about those particular things. Uh, it's, it's a very, very popular program and we do all of this within about two, two and a half hours. It's, uh, it's really quite enjoyable for most people. So, so what kind of uh, telescope do you have? Is it some sort of special high-end one? Well, right now I have a 14-inch diameter uh, Dobsonian telescope. It's uh, 14 inches in diameter means that its uh, mirror that's 14 inches across can collect about 2,600 times more light than the human eye can see. So that allows us to see really quite far and quite detailed into the universe. Uh, the, the telescope itself is electronic in nature. It's computerized. So not only can I push a button or two and have it find objects for me, that's not as big a deal as it sounds like because <laughs> I can find them myself. But what's important is that telescope can also track the objects as the Earth is rotating, objects appear to drift across the sky. Right. So the telescope can compensate for the rotation of the Earth. That allows people to sit or stand and just gaze into the eyepiece and really absorb what they're actually perceiving. That's really great. So, so what do you typically focus on first? Is it like uh, a constellation? Do you start with a planet? We usually start, again, depends on the conditions and depends on the time that we get together. But typically what we will do is we'll start by talking about what is visible in the sky. Maybe it's bright planets. Right now, the planet Venus is low in the western sky at sunset. Jupiter is high in the south. So we would talk about those. Then as it starts getting darker, we'll talk about the stars. And one of the things I like to co convey to people is, 
is is how amazing it is what we are seeing. The stars we're looking at are suns. These are things just like our sun, trillions of miles away. And when you look at any one of them, you may be looking at a mighty sun that is home to a planetary system, perhaps a planetary system that has life on one or two of the planets. Uh, and we can see these things with our eyes. And these are what the stars are. They're trillions of miles away. And once we do that, then, of course, then we can get into the more in-depth things when we start looking through the telescope. But I want people to have a general concept of what it is that they are surrounded by. Do, do you ever take requests from people? I mean, what, what might be some of the crowd favorites uh, with people on your tours? Oh, all the time, all the time. And I invite uh, requests. I feel like Casey Kasem sometimes. I just, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take a request. Sure. But we do. And uh, if the object is in the sky, and if it's something that is visible to a telescope of this size, it was absolutely will look at it. You know, for me, it's all about the Milky Way. I, I had seen it in pictures, you know, in books, online. But when you actually see it in person, it's so amazing. In fact, the first time I, when I was looking up, I thought it was the clouds. It was kind of so bright and distinctive. I thought, oh, gee, it's cloudy out. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, those are stars. Uh, it it kind of looks like somebody spilled milk across the sky, right? Exactly. It does. And it does look like a cloud. In fact, I've had people come out and uh, they've never seen the Milky Way before. And this is the one thing they come out for. They want to see the Milky Way. And you know how amazing it is. And so that people will come out and it will start getting dark. And before I get to talking about the Milky Way, somebody will point up in the sky at the Milky Way and say, oh, my goodness, it's getting cloudy. Maybe we should quit. <laughs> and I have to remind them that's not a cloud. Right. That's the Milky Way. You are, you are seeing it. It really does look like that. So it really is quite an amazing sight. And it's, it is my favorite time of year during the summer to be able to see that Milky Way. So I share that with you. It's, it's absolutely spectacular to see. But it's even more spectacular when you realize what it is you're actually looking at. Right. That it's, uh, these are millions of stars that you're seeing. It's, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. Oh, it's quite incomprehensible. And it's one of the things I like to remind people. Don't, you know, no, don't get frustrated because you can't wrap your head around this stuff. Nobody can. And if anybody tells you they can, why, well, they're lying. There's no way. We, uh, this is completely uh, incomprehensible to all of us. Oh, it's easy. We can quote numbers and we can do the mathematics and so on. But to really wrap our heads around, around these things, it's, it's just impossible to do. So I, I, I like to put people at ease so that they don't feel like there's something wrong with them, that they can't comprehend this stuff. Nobody can. Why do you think people are drawn to star-filled skies? Well, I, first of all, I think it's it's like you said, you know, it's something that they never see. They read about, they hear about it, they see photographs. But, you know, I think even deeper than that, uh, we humans uh, are made of chemical ingredients that were forged inside of ancient stars and blasted into space, recycled into stars, planetary systems, and at least in our case, life forms. All the chemistry that we are made of, the carbon in our DNA, the oxygen we breathe, the calcium on our bones, all of these things were forged inside of the stars. And I think that somewhere down deep in our DNA, we are attracted to the stars because we sort of know them as home. I think there's something very, very deep down inside of our DNA that tells us that's where we came from. Well, like Carl Sagan said, we are all made of stardust, right? 
We absolutely are. We're made of ashes of dead stars. That's what we are made of. <laughs> what about man-made satellites? I know like there's a website you can go to to find out where the International Space Station is when it's going to pass over your head. And uh, there are all kinds of satellites up there that you can probably see with, a bin- with binoculars even. Um, do they ever make a guest appearance on your tours or even like UFOs, things you're not even sure what they are? They do quite frequently. Uh, there are probably tens of thousands of Earth-orbiting satellites. Uh, I, I'm, I only concern myself with the brighter ones because, you know, the public wants to see the brighter ones. Uh, they will, most people will actually spot two or three very, very faint satellites during the course of the evening. But before we head out, I always check before the evening begins, I always double check three satellites. I check the International Space Station. I check the Hubble Space Telescope. And I check the, uh, there's a there's a whole grouping of satellites up there called Iridium satellites, navigational and communication satellites. Those satellites can occasionally become very, very bright in the sky. So I always look for those. And if those become, um, are going to be visible that night, I have my alarm set. Hmm. And five minutes before they reach their brightest, my alarm goes off, we stop whatever we're talking about, and we concentrate on the satellites. And they can be really quite amazing. My favorite, of course, this International Space Station is everyone's favorite because it's a manned satellite. People are in, you know, on board the space station. But personally, as an astronomer, my favorite is the Hubble Space Telescope. Because when you realize what that is that you are actually seeing, you know, that telescope has been in Earth orbit for 28 years. It has completely revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos. And to be able to see it with your own eyes passing overhead, that I think to most people is is one of the most remarkable things that they can actually do. People have this concept that satellites are way out in space and you can't see them. But in fact, they're not that far away. I mean, the Hubble telescope is maybe 300 miles up. Hmm. That's it. So when it passes over Borrego Springs, I remind people the Hubble telescope is closer than Phoenix. And they get they get it because it's really not that far away. Wow. Thanks so much, Dennis. Dennis Mamana is the owner of Borrego Night Sky Tours, winner of TripAdvisor's 2017 Certificate of Excellence. You can find links and more information about this tour and lots more information on stargazing throughout the Golden State at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Phil Guyman used to be a professional cyclist. Now he's an author, podcast host, and star of his own YouTube travel show, where he seeks out some of the most beautiful places to ride his bike. In this lightning round, we'll hear about some of his Golden State favorites. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Phil. Thanks for having me. So this lightning round is a bit like a time trial. You're racing the clock, so go as fast as you can without flying over the handlebars, okay? (laughs) Got it. Okay, I'm wearing a helmet. Oh, good. Excellent. Okay, so let's start at the top. What's your all-time favorite ride in California and why? I would have to say Mulholland Highway in in Malibu or Mulholland Drive in Hollywood, one of those. It's the same ridge. It's just this, the top of the ridge, you can see the ocean on one side. You can see mountains with snow on the other side. Uh, It's, they, they, they paved it twisty on purpose. They could have made it straight, but they made it beautiful. Hmm. Uh, that's where they film all the car commercials, and, and you ride there, and uh, you can you can see it's for a reason. Sounds beautiful. Okay. Uh, let's give one to the Instagram crowd. What about the most perfectly picturesque ride? It sounds like that Malibu ride could be in the running on that. Gibraltar's really nice in Santa Barbara. That would be that's that'd be high up there. Um, you just you just do these switchbacks right up from the coast, and you can see the ocean almost the whole way. 
um, and it's just there's there's not a car and it's uh, it's all parkland and and a couple fancy houses is is all that interrupts you in nature. Um, I know you've ridden up and down California's most difficult hills and mountains. Where's the best place to, to do that kind of climbing? My favorite probably for climbing specifically is, is Big Bear. Um, it's, it's a two-hour drive from L.A., and just, which is astounding. You can just be in, the, in a ski resort um, two hours from, from a hot city. Um, but it's just there's, there's all these just like sneaky little roads that go up to lakes. Um, it's, it's all up and down, and it's just super quiet and, and peaceful and picturesque. This is where I would kind of go. When I had some work to do when I was training, I would uh, I'd I'd get three weeks in Big Bear and uh and and go flog myself. That sounds really that sounds lovely. I mean, but it also sounds kind of torturous as well <laughs> going up with all those hills. I don't know how you guys do it. I mean, what what about the best easy ride? Maybe something that the whole family can do. Sure, there's uh, California has a lot of great bike paths near where you are uh, at Davis. There's there's bike paths all through Sacramento along the river there. Um, the LA river has a, a bike path network that's, that's constantly expanding and does a great job. Um, right in the middle of Los Angeles, there's, there's Griffith park in, in Hollywood and then Elysian park where Dodger stadium is. Um, each one of those has like a, I think pretty much closed to cars, flat loop or with a big bike lane, um, that, you know, people with, with strollers and, and, and roller skates and all that are, are welcome to enjoy. And, uh, yeah, there's there's no excuses if if uh, if you don't like those. Do you have a, a favorite coastal route? Man, you can't go wrong on Pacific Coast Highway. <laughs> there's a there's a ride. I I do a ride with with my friends from Santa Monica uh, through Malibu every Saturday morning, um, and and on the way back I, I do a thing on Instagram. I do a dolphin watch, where uh, there's there's just as as you're riding along the coast, at some point you're going to see a dolphin, and I'll stop and go Instagram live and just narrate the dolphins for a few minutes and leave. Wow. And uh, it's, yeah, you can't, how is that real? <laughs> Just <laughs> dolphins every Saturday morning. You can't get better than that. Amazing. Well, what's the best thing about riding in California versus anywhere else? I mean, they, it's, it's sort of cliche to talk about weather, but, uh, but man, weather is everything. <laughs> I think just for a regular person, like being out in the sunshine, it's, there's, there's a reason we love it. Um, and as a professional cyclist, like I would have to be out and, uh, you know, there's there's enough days where you have to race in the rain and, and or the snow and it's your job um, that I sort of felt I'll go ahead and be soft when it comes to training and I'll just live somewhere where the weather's pretty much perfect year round and, and not put myself through more suffering than I have to. I've, mm. I've suffered enough uh, was was my rationale. <laughs> I know you rode in the Amgen Tour of California multiple times during your career. Does that race hold, hold any kind of special meaning for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was living back east when I first did the, the tour of California. And then once I, once I got here and, and started making friends, it, it became kind of my home race. Um, and then I, I joined a European team and I, and we'd bring the European guys over and I was sort of like the local expert. I was like, Oh, I know this climb. Here's what this is like. Um, and, and since then the, now I, I go to tour of California as basically as a spectator, um, and, uh, and, and just, hand out cookies and, and, uh, and harass my friends who are still in the, in the pack there or bring crowds out to cheer for them. It's great. Sounds great. All right. You've inspired me, Phil. I'm going to check out that race and start exploring some of the routes in my, my own neighborhood. Thanks so much for joining us on the California Now podcast. Sure thing. You can find Phil Guyman's podcast, Real Talent with Phil Guyman on iTunes. And you should definitely check out his YouTube series, Worst and Best Retirement Ever, when you get a chance. And as always, you can find links to all the places we discussed here by visiting visitcalifornia.com slash podcast.
This is California Now. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Have you ever driven past a breathtakingly beautiful building and wondered why it looks the way it does? Well, if so, my next guest would be the ideal road trip companion for you. Sam Lubell has written eight books about architecture, including Mid-Century Modern Architecture Travel Guide, West Coast, USA, a fascinating look at one of the most celebrated architectural styles of the 20th century. Sam, welcome to the California Now podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I, I love your book. It's incredibly dense and full of really useful information, but it's also compact and it fits right into my glove compartment. Yeah. You, you call this book a travel guide. Did, did you write it thinking you know, readers might create itineraries with it? Do you know if people are actually doing that? Uh, yeah, definitely. People, people are definitely making itineraries out of it. I have friends who've, who've done that. I've done that with some friends, uh, which is super fun. You pick a, you know, a city or, or a neighborhood and go from one place to the next. And it's really uh, more than just looking at the buildings. It's about exploring neighborhoods and, and areas that you would never go to and getting an idea of you know, the context uh, of where these buildings were. And then obviously appreciating the buildings themselves more than looking at them in, in, in books in black and white. You know, the experience of getting to, uh, to see them in person is phenomenally different and uh, much more rewarding, in my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between California and mid-century modern architecture? I know you talk about like the, the weather being uh, you know, a factor in the design and having it very open to the outdoors. Are there any other kind of uh, strong connections that California has to this style of architecture? Yeah, I think I thought a lot of it was California was all about starting over and starting kind of a new sort of way of living, a new civilization. So it sort of matched perfectly with the style that was sort of trying to reinvent architecture. Uh, but it's it's also about technology, uh, the way to pull off some of these, you know, huge windows and long beams. You have to really, you know, push technology, which a lot of that technology even had been worked on during World War II. And California was the perfect place for that. You had sort of, that was the, that was the cradle of technology in the United States at the time. You had, uh, you know, L.A. was the center of all aerospace. Uh, uh, you had, you know, all the airplane manufacturers and, and even, you know, space manufacturers there. Uh, and you also had uh, places like Boeing in the Northwest, and you also had obviously Silicon Valley uh, in the Bay Area. So really, that kind of technology focus of mid-century architecture was perfect. And then again, you had the the weather, the landscapes. It's really, it really was the perfect place. And a lot of people say it really is the only <laughs> true indigenous style of of California because you know, a lot of the sort of mission style was taken, and, and Spanish style was taken from obviously from from Europe. And and this was something that. Um, even though there was a European version, this was something that was that was then adapted California modernism specifically to California. So, so let's say I just landed in San Diego and I have my rental car and I want to drive around and soak up some of the amazing mid-century modern architecture. Where do I go first? What do I see? <laughs> well, uh, there's so much. I mean, we, you know, we have over 250 uh, entries in the book. But uh, if you're in San Diego, the first place I would go personally is uh, the Salk Institute. Uh, that's a project by Louis Kahn that was built for uh, the institute started by Jonas Salk, who uh, who uh, came up with the polio vaccine. And it's a, a brutalist, I call it the brutalist Taj Mahal. Uh, brutalism <laughs> is, a, is sort of an offshoot, a much heavier offshoot of modernism that came a little bit later that was using uh, heavy concrete and sort of moving it like uh, as if it were sculpture and floating it. And the Salk Institute is all about symmetry, just like the Taj Mahal where, where I've been too. And like the Taj Mahal, there's also a central 
uh, central channel of water that goes right through the middle, going all the way to the, basically pointing you all the way to the sky and to the uh, Pacific coast. And then the buildings are on either side of you, perfectly arranged. Um, and they have these amazing light courts to let light and uh, and let the, the workers really enjoy the outdoors. So it's this incredible combination of heavy and light and symmetry and and mass and space and really sort of, it's sort of Louis Kahn is sort of architecture personified to me because it's more than just looking at it it's about feeling it and and that that building that project really uh, exemplifies that is is there another maybe as well yeah, I mean, you actually, San Diego is great. There's so much of it, and people don't realize it. But right across the street from the Salk, you have another amazing uh, mid-century piece that people don't really know about outside of California, and it's called the Theodore Geisel Library. It's for UC San Diego, and it's named after Dr. Seuss, <laughs> uh, who is from the area, actually. Uh, and the the library is was built by William Pereira, who is sort of one of these unsung modernist heroes. Uh, he also built LACMA. Uh, and and LAX and so many other LA uh, landmarks, but nobody's really heard of him outside of the architecture world. Uh, and the the Geisel Library uh, is an example of his really adventurous uh, play with structure and sort of this technology that I'm talking about. And it's sort of an inverted ziggurat, so it sort of it starts narrow and then widens as it goes up, and it looks a lot uh, like a spaceship. Hmm. It actually looks like something that could have come out of a Dr. Seuss book, actually, almost. Yeah, maybe if Dr. Seuss was sort of going sci-fi, I think it'd be perfect. <laughs> so it's really great. I, like as far as like setting up itineraries, it sounds like San Diego in particular, you can make a day of it and kind of just, you know, pick a couple of sites and just kind of go from place to place. They seem pretty close by to each other. Oh, yeah. You have so much there. I mean, you have right down the street from these, you have, you know, Edward Durrell Stone, a hospital that, that he did. And he was sort of the, the master of like of what was called new formalism, which was sort of bringing uh, ancient and classical motifs into modernism. Uh, you have uh, case study houses, uh, which is a whole program to sort of reinvent housing for the middle class. Um, there are tons of those in L.A., but you also have some of them. Uh, in San Diego, you have houses in the hills by uh, famous architects like William Kreisel. There's just there's so much there, and you really you wouldn't know it. But if you know what to look for, there's just there's so much, and it's the same case everywhere you go. L.A. is a perfect example of that. Sure, a lot of its boulevards aren't the, aren't the greatest, but once you start wandering around and knowing what to look for, L.A. actually has the the largest concentration of mid-century architecture probably in the world. Um, hmm. at least residentially. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's all about knowing what to look for. And I love that because you sort of feel like this is, this is my thing. You know, you're not like New York where everybody knows the Empire State Building or everybody knows the Chrysler Building. Whereas in these places, you're sort of, you feel like you've discovered this, this diamond in the rough and it, and it feels more intimate and, and much more per- personal. Well, let's talk about LA uh, in depth a little bit. Uh, help us navigate our way through, through Los Angeles. What are some of the can't miss locations that people really ought to see? The, the most famous in the in the hills and the most probably the most famous mid-century house uh, in probably all of mid-century architecture is in the uh, sort of the hills above West Hollywood and it's called uh, the Stahl House or Case Study 22. And uh, this, this house was built on what was considered an unbuildable lot uh, by an architect named Pierre Koenig. And uh, essentially he was he was actually he was in uh, the military. Uh, during World War II, and he discovered how to use steel in really effective ways. And he was able to make these kind of incredibly long uh, steel, uh, uninterrupted steel expanses that sort of uh, were able to cover up what was basically a big glass, a giant glass winged uh, winged house uh, floating over over the hills. And it sort of embodies the idea of sort of 
the space age structure open, completely open with the glittering lights below you. And it's, uh, you know, humans overcoming nature and moving into the future, but also fusing with their surroundings. And it, it just became kind of the, the embodiment of this idealism and this futurism of, of the mid-century. You know, a lot, a lot of the homes that you talk about are owned by, you know, private individuals, right? So, so how does that work from a tourism perspective? What's the, uh, like the etiquette so you can appreciate the work without bothering the people who live there? Yeah, that's the tricky part. Um, and we, we stress in the book that we don't want people to bother uh, the occupants. And we certainly, uh, we don't, and we don't uh, encourage anybody to trespass. But uh, it's, uh, it is fair game uh, to, to look at the houses. They are, uh, you know, part of the public realm as long as you stay on, on the sidewalk. Um, so a lot of that is an art of, of, of looking over gates and looking <laughs> over fences that are short. Uh, you know, looking through trees. A lot of times, they're just completely open, and you can just look from the from the street. But uh, you know, we 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 put uh, projects that you can clearly see from the street. You don't have to trespass. You don't have to do anything uh, sketchy. <laughs> I once learned the hard way never to do that again. Oh, um, really? <laughs> I, I I I will admit that there was a house in Joshua Tree, uh, and a very famous house that I won't name. That the only way to see it was to walk on the property. Uh, it was in the the, uh, the desert, and the security alarm went off, and I jumped back into a cactus. Um, oh boy! <laughs> and I learned the hard way, after several hours of picking small cactus thorns out of my legs and ar- other areas, to never do that again. Not not a pleasant way to go. No, so I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. But uh, but it is. I mean, you can really take in homes from the street. Um, and there are so many houses also that you can visit that are open to tours. The stall house, which I mentioned, is open. Uh, to tours, and I can't stress enough the the, uh, the 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 really the need if you want to understand mid-century architecture to go visit that. Another one that's open to tours is the Eames House, and that's over by uh, in Pacific Palisades, by uh, you know over the overlooking the ocean, and a really really important uh, house by Charles and Ray Eames that uh, not only brings indoors and outdoors together, but explores uh, design and color and new technology in ways that ha- hadn't been done before. Are, are there any times a year when some of these private homes and buildings that aren't usually open to the public that they do open to the public? Like, is there some sort of like open house week uh, or season? Is that what Modernism Week is all about? Modernism Week is definitely about that. Um, you can go, you can go on bus tours, you can go into buildings, you can walk around. Uh, that's probably the biggest example of that. Not everything is open to the public, uh, but. Uh, you can at least see a, a, a huge amount of these things from the street. And Palm Springs is great. They actually publish a map of all their uh, of most of their most important mid-century buildings and houses. Uh, but Modernism Week is definitely the ideal way to go. And, and Modernism Week is basically in Palm Springs. Is that correct? Modernism Week's in Palm Springs, exactly. And I, there's some incredibly insane amount of people that go, like over like forty to fifty thousand people go a year. Um, so this is not a small <laughs> little blip. This is a huge trend. Right. All right. All right. So let, let's head off to, to Greater Palm Springs right now. Um, I've been told that Sunnylands is a must-see. That's an epic mid-century destination, right? Oh, yeah. Sunnylands is definitely worth visiting. Um, it's the, the home of the Annenbergs, and it was built by a, an architect named A. Quincy Jones, not to be confused with the music producer. Basically, uh, the, the, the Annenbergs wanted uh, Jones to sort of fuse mid-century with their interest in uh, sort of uh, in sort of Mesoamerican uh, and even e- Egyptian themes. Sunnylands has also been has hosted presidents all the way from, uh, you know, like Nixon and Reagan uh, up to Obama. Uh, the Annenbergs, uh, you know, they've hosted everybody there, and it's a really important place. 
Sounds amazing with a lot of history as well. Um, what what else do I need to see when I'm in Palm Springs? I, I associate that area with uh, the Rat Pack and the 1950s and all that. I mean, can I see some of that yeah. Hollywood culture in the area? Oh yeah, you can see uh, you can see Frank Sinatra's house. Uh, you can go to this uh, house called that was called literally the House of the Future, hmm. um, and it was later used. Uh, it was built by this architect Bill Kreisel. Uh, who built a lot of the tracks in Palm Springs. Uh, but that House of the Future was at one point used uh, by Elvis on his honeymoon. And now it's known as the Elvis Honeymoon Hideaway. <laughs> when you look at it from the street, it looks like a giant airplane. Uh, definitely worth visiting that. Uh, yeah, the Rat Pack was there. And uh, that kind of cool mid-century vibe that we now appreciate now was definitely appreciated then. I mean, that's when it was born. Well, this has been very insightful. Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sam Lubell is a contributing editor at the Architects newspaper and writes for the New York Times, Wallpaper, Dwell, Wire, the Los Angeles Times, and many others. His book, Mid-Century Modern Architecture Travel Guide, is definitely worth checking out. You can find links to his book and everything we discussed today at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please subscribe. And if you're interested in learning more about mid-century modern architecture, head over to the California Now blog and check out the feature story spotlighting nine iconic mid-century buildings in Greater Palm Springs. These homes and businesses are absolutely stunning, and all of them are worth a drive-by. Find out more about the best ways to experience this desert oasis on the California Now blog. That's visitcalifornia.com slash now.